Well, today is the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord. As everyone knows, the Presentation is the fourth joyful mystery of the Rosary. And besides that, it also contains the first of the seven sorrows of Our Lady. So today, we'll briefly approach the Feast from both those two angles. First, we'll approach from the point of view, generally speaking, the fourth joyful mystery. And do that, we'll read a very long excerpt from the works of the great and incorrupt Benedictine Don Columbia Marmon. As usual, we'll edit and cut and paste. Don Marmion, God is love. And so that we may have some idea of his love, he gives a share of it to mothers. The heart of mother, with her unwearing tenderness, the constancy of her care, the inexhaustible delicacy of her affection, is a truly divine creation, although God has placed in her only a spark of his love for us. Yet however imperfectly a mother's heart reflects the divine love towards us, God gives us our mothers to take his place in some manner with us. He places them at our side from our cradles to guide us, to guard us, especially in our earliest years when we have so much need of tenderness. Imagine with what tender love the Holy Trinity fashioned the heart of the Blessed Virgin, chosen to be the mother of the incarnate word. God delighted in pouring forth love into her heart, informing her heart expressly to love a God-man. In Mary's immaculate heart, the love of a creature towards her God and the love of a mother towards her only son were perfectly harmonized. And we should keep in mind that the supernatural love of Our Lady is even more wonderful. A soul's love for God is measured by its degree of grace. What is it in us that hinders the development of grace and love? Our sins, our deliberate faults, our voluntary infidelities, our attachment to creatures, each Deliberate fault narrows the heart and strengthens pride. But Our Lady's soul is perfectly pure, unstained by sin, untouched by any shadow of a fault. She is full of grace. What joy our Lord felt to be loved to such an extent by his mother. After the incomprehensible joy arising to him from the beatific vision, and from the look of infinite satisfaction with which the Heavenly Father contemplated him, nothing could have rejoiced him as much as the love of his mother. He found in that love a more than abundant compensation for the indifference of those who would not receive him. He found in the immaculate heart of this young virgin a fire of undying love that he himself further enkindled by his divine power. Jesus gave himself to Mary in such an ineffable manner, and Mary corresponded so fully that we cannot conceive of a union greater nor deeper, excepting, of course, for the union of three divine persons, the most blessed Trinity, and the hypostatic union, which is the union of our Lord, of the two natures, human and divine, in the one divine person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. 
Let us draw near to the Blessed Virgin Mary with a humble but entire confidence. When our Lord is 40 days old, the Blessed Virgin presents him in the temple. She's the first to offer divine Son to his eternal Father. After the offering that Jesus made of himself at the moment of his incarnation, that he consummated on Calvary, Mary's offering is the most perfect. It goes beyond all the priestly acts of men, because Mary is the mother of Christ, while priests are only his ministers. Every Jewish mother had to present herself in the temple a few weeks after the birth of her child in order to be purified from the legal stain contracted as a result of original sin. Moreover, if it was her firstborn and a son, she must present him to the Lord to be consecrated to him. Certainly it was unnecessary to consecrate our Lord, as he's the very Son of God. Nor was it necessary that she who had conceived him by the Holy Spirit remained a virgin should be purified. But Mary, guided by the Holy Spirit, willed to accomplish this ceremony, showing thereby the depths of her submission. With Joseph, her husband, she brought her firstborn to the temple. On this day, Christ enters for the first time into the temple, and it is into his temple that he enters. This wonderful temple, the admiration of the nations and the pride of Israel, wherein were performed all the religious rites and sacrifices of which God himself had regulated the details, this temple belongs to him. For this child, carried in the arms of a young maiden, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And how does he come? In the splendor of his majesty? As the one to whom all these offerings are due? No, he comes there absolutely hidden. There must have been a hustling crowd at the approach of the sacred building. Merchants, Levites, priests, doctors of the law. A little group passes unnoticed through this crowd. They're poor people, for they do not offer a lamb, the offering of the rich. They offer only two pigeons, the offering of the poor. No one heeds them. The great, the haughty among the Jews have not so much as a glance for them. It is necessary that the Holy Spirit should enlighten Simeon and Anna in order that they might recognize the Messiah. He who is the Savior promised to the world, the light to be revealed to all the nations, comes into his own temple as a hidden God. To outward appearances, there's nothing particular in the simple action that all Jewish mothers perform. But on this day, God receives infinitely more glory in the temple than he'd ever received by all the sacrifices and holocausts of the Old Testament. For on this day, it is his son Jesus who is offered and who offers himself infinite homage of adoration, thanksgiving, expiation, and supplication. The Heavenly Father receives with immeasurable joy the sacred offering, this gift worthy of himself. And all the angels of heaven fix their their captivated gazes on this unique offering. The only victim worthy of God had just been offered to him. And it's by the hands of Our Lady, Our Lady full of grace, that this offering is presented. Mary's faith is perfect. Filled with the light of the Holy Spirit, she understood the value of the offering she was making to God at this moment. 
In the same way she had given her consent in the name of the whole human race, when the angel Gabriel announced her the mystery of the Incarnation, so upon this day Mary offered her son Jesus in the name of the whole human race. She presents him to God the Father in order to obtain for us all the grace of salvation that Christ is to bring into the world. What priest, what saint, ever presented the holy sacrifice of the Mass to God in such close union with the divine victim as was the Virgin at this moment? Not only was she united to our Lord by faith and love, as we ourselves can be, although in an infinitely lesser degree, but the bond that united her to Christ was unique. This is why Mary, from the day on which she presents Jesus as the first fruits of his future sacrifice, has such a great part in the work of our redemption. And see how also at this moment our Lord associated his blessed mother with his state of victimhood. The old man Simeon, guided by and filled by the Holy Spirit, recognizes the Savior, the Lord, and this child. He takes him in his arms, you can see right there in the window, and sings his joy at having at length seen with his own eyes the promised Messiah. As he restores the child to his mother, Simeon says, Behold, this child is set for the fall and for the resurrection of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be contradicted. And thy own soul a sword shall pierce, that out of many hearts thoughts may be revealed. It's the foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Calvary. We shall see her consummate her offering on the Mount of Calvary. We shall see her offering again her son, the fruit of her womb, for our salvation, as she had offered him 33 years before in the Temple of Jerusalem. Let us thank Our Lady for having presented her divine Son for us. Let us offer fervent acts of thanksgiving to our Lord himself for offering himself to the Father for our salvation. Thus Dom Columbian Marmion. So we've considered the presentation as such. Now let's briefly consider the prophecy of Simeon, which is the first of the seven sorrows of Our Lady. As we just heard, during the presentation, after taking our Lord in his arms and praising God the Father for letting him live to see the promised Messiah, Simeon hands our Lord back to Our Lady and in words foreshadowing Calvary, tells her, quote, Behold, this child is set for the fall and for the resurrection of many in Israel for a sign of contradiction. Thy own soul a sword shall pierce, that out of many hearts thoughts may be revealed. Close quote. We'll take a few minutes to ponder this prophecy. It's found in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. Luke 2, 34. This child is set for the fall and for the resurrection of many in Israel for a sign which shall be contradicted. The great scriptural commentator Cornelius Lapide explains, quote, The interpretation of St. Augustine, the Venerable Bede, and others is that by fall, is meant the destruction of the Jews who rebelled against Christ. By resurrection, the salvation of those who believe in him. For they that rebelled against Christ fell from faith into faithlessness, from obedience into rebellion, from the knowledge of God and of sacred scripture into blindness and stubbornness, from the hope of salvation into despair and reprobation, 
from heaven into hell. But those who believe in Christ have risen by his grace from the sins in which they lay prostrate to a new life of virtue and grace looking for the hope of glory. Close quote. Of course, what was true to the, of the Jews who were members of the one true church at that time is just as true for us Catholics today. Those that rebel against Christ, and in this apostasy, their number is legion, those that rebel against Christ fall from faith into faithfulness, from obedience into rebellion, from the knowledge of God and of sacred scripture into blindness and stubbornness, from the hope of salvation into despair and reprobation, from the path to heaven into the plunge into hell. But those who believe in Christ have risen by his grace from the state in which they laid prostrate in the bondage and filth of sin to a new life of the freedom of the sons of God, to a new life of virtue and grace, looking forward with great hope and expectation to heavenly glory. Luke 2.35a, And thy own soul a sword shall pierce. Cornelius Elapide explains, quote, This sword is twofold. First, the sword of the tongue and of contradiction. For the Blessed Virgin, hearing the insults, calumnies, and blasphemies with which Christ was assailed by the Jews, suffered intense tortures, just as though a sword had transfixed her soul. The sword also refers to the nails and the other torments, which not only pierced the body and soul of Christ, but also pierced the soul of the Virgin. St. Augustine explains that just as when a man stabs with one stroke of the sword two persons who are next to each other, so as to kill the one and wound and pierce the other, so too this sword which killed Christ intimately penetrated, wounded, and tormented his virgin mother. We may gather how great was the torment and sorrow inflicted by this sword. First, from the fact that it was her son who suffered in the crucifixion of Christ, whom the mother of God loved above all else and more than herself, so that she would far rather have suffered and been crucified herself than see Christ, her son, suffer and be crucified. Second, from the severity and extent of Christ's torments, for he suffered the most atrocious agonies in all his senses and all his members, and the Blessed Virgin experienced all those by her compassion. Third, from the dignity of the person, For Christ, who is suffering, was truly the Son of God, the Messiah, and Savior of the world. Therefore, it was a horrible and detestable thing to scourge and crucify him. The Blessed Virgin meditated profoundly upon this dignity, and therefore was profoundly tormented by his pains. Fourth, from his loneliness. For Christ suffered alone, deserted by his apostles and all his friends. Although the Blessed Virgin stood by and suffered with him, yet the mother's anguish added a new pang to the son's torments. He experienced a wondrous sorrow that his mother should sorrow and be tormented on his account. And this grief of Christ again had its echo in the mother's soul, for she lamented that Christ was pained and afflicted by her pain. And fifthly, from the constant presence and sight of her crucified son. St. John Damascene teaches that the pains which she escaped in childbirth, she endured at the time of his passion, so that through her maternal affection, she felt inwardly that she was being torn to pieces. 
Because of all this, the Blessed Virgin is reckoned as a martyr and more than a martyr. For as the sword pierced the bodies of the other martyrs, it pierced the soul of Christ and the Blessed Virgin. As Christ in his passion was tormented more than all the martyrs, so too was the Blessed Virgin by her compassion with him. And by this torment and sorrow, she would have been overcome and would have died had not God preserved her life by his special support. Luke 2.35b, that out of many hearts, thoughts may be revealed. That great doctor church, St. Hilary of Poitiers, teaches that the sword refers to the day of judgment. He states that on that day, the sword shall dissect and lay open the hearts of men, even of the Blessed Virgin, so as to reveal all their secret thoughts, intentions, and desires, and to judge them either by rewarding or punishing them. Close quote, St. Hilary of Poitiers. On that day, the sword shall dissect and lay open the hearts of men so as to reveal all their secret thoughts, intentions, and desires, and to judge them either by rewarding them or punishing them. Where is your heart? Right now, where is your heart? If your heart were laid bare right now and your thoughts were revealed, what will we see? A burning desire to do God's will, come what may? A dedication to the truth, no matter how painful? A burning love, Christ our Lord, of his mother, of his holy church? A resolve to suffer anything in order to be saved? If your thoughts were revealed, what would we see? If your heart were laid bare open right now, what would we see? Indifference? Lukewarmness? Someone who's Catholic on Sunday and American the rest of the week? Someone filled with pride and arrogance? Someone driven by a clawing desire for power? Desire for money and possessions? Desire for fame and honor? Would we see a heart burning with strange fires of lust? Heart full of anger, hatred, envy, filled with the pus of bitterness, contempt for others. What would we see? Our Lady can see your heart. What is she seeing right now, right at this very minute? Is it causing her more sorrow? If your heart is not where it ought to be, then you need to humbly repent. You need to repent from the very depths of your heart and turn to Our Lady, who is the mediatrix of all graces, and beg her for help 
and beg her for healing, and she'll pour out those graces that you need if you keep praying, if you keep begging. There's so many souls that won't ask for the graces they so desperately need. And sadly, there's a lot of them that wouldn't even accept those graces where they'd be poured out on them. Why? Because they've made a choice, a clear choice. They've rejected the truth, they've rejected the light, and they've chosen the world. We're reminded of that reality every day in those terrifying words we hear in the last gospel. Erat lux vera, que eliminat omnim homnim venetum in hunc mundum. Mundo erat, et mundus per ipsum factus es mundus eam non cognovit, et propria venit, et suiam non receperunt. That was the true light, which enlightens every man who comes in the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. He came into his own. He came into his own. And his own received him not. You've been baptized and confirmed. That means you're his own. Where's your heart? Is he ruling there? Or not? Who is ruling there? Who is ruling there? That's the most important question you can ever ask yourself. Because if it isn't him, when you go to your judgment, you will certainly go to hell. Where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Let's close. Please unite yourself to me as I pray. O sorrowful and immaculate heart of Mary, because of our sins, ingratitude, and indifference to thy Son, we cause this first sword to pierce thy grieving heart. Obtain for us the grace to cease to be indifferent to thy son, to cease being ungrateful for all thou hast suffered because of thy love for us, to have true contrition for our sins. Our Lady of Sorrows, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.